grateful as always to be working on this land, this indigenous land of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and the Mississaugas. And I'm always conscious of being a guest here. Um, so Marcus invited me to speak about Canada's official apology to indigenous peoples. The official apology, as we know, was delivered in Parliament in June 2008, and it coincided with the start of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, and the TRC, uh, we sometimes forget that it operated in a kind of very uneasy parallel with what I like to call the Long Harper Decade. You know, it started very soon after, um, within months of the um, Conservatives being elected for the first time, and it concluded, of course, just four months before uh, the Liberals took power. So in preparing for this presentation, I kept struggling with differentiating these political actors and processes and historical events. Stephen Harper, the Conservatives, the Apology, the TRC. Um, and so instead of trying to uh, avoid that, I guess I made that my task for this presentation. So I found that I'm not alone in uh, having a hard time disentangling these things. Throughout the Commission's work, it was often described as having been created after or by or because of the apology, and sometimes vice versa, uh, but neither of these are true. Uh, on the day the TRC delivered its final report, the federal government did little to discourage this narrative. In question period, Stephen Harper boasted that his government had created the TRC. Uh, he, when asked if they would, had any uh, intention of fulfilling any of the recommendations, his response was to remind people that it was him that had delivered this historic apology. That was his answer to that question. So a narrative that begins with apology and ends with reconciliation makes sense, but it's not accurate. The Harper administration opposed the creation of a truth commission, resisted making an apology, and blocked the work of the commission to the degree that the TRC had to sue the federal government several times. Uh, for its part, the commission, I think, not only overcame this opposition, but I think mobilized it as a way of unbracketing the supposed wrong to indigenous peoples and naming settler colonialism as ongoing in here. I think uh, you're gonna hear a lot of similarities between what we've already heard from Matt. Um, though I think perhaps it's a bit more of an emphasis on the conflict and the opposition. Um, I think sometimes these progressive events can, we have an inclination to uh, attribute them to inevitability when things go well. And so I think I'm trying to highlight the work that went into um, these, uh, these processes. So um, my dissertation project looks at uh, several commissions that have been employed in the negotiation of Indigenous state relations in Canada. And apologies are quite out of my wheelhouse, actually. Um, but I'm happy to speak to them here because I think they're not, of course, unrelated. Commissions are largely a means of dealing with scandals of government. And I see the official apology is operating in the same way. I call commissions attempts to fix Canada in the sense of cure, but also hold still to make knowable. Um, they're part of the production of official knowledges. And as we know, knowledge is unpredictable. Um, and I think the apology and the way that it works um, in relation to the TRC and to this period of time is one of unpredictability. Um, commissions, like official apologies, are largely criticized for being easy answers to complicated questions, a cheap and easy way of deflecting blame or responsibility. But calling a commission uh, is also an implicit acknowledgement that a scandal does exist, uh, and not all public calls for a commission result in a commission being called. 
so in terms of political capital, such gestures are not always cheap or easy, and I think we can see that particularly right now with the current uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls inquiry, which has been not an easy resolution to a complicated problem, but quite the opposite. So Canada's official apology wasn't always going to happen despite the apparently low stakes in terms of legal liability, as has already been discussed. In my estimation, the life of the official apology was a brief one. It began with the apology on June 11th, 2008, and ended about a year later. That was the day the Prime Minister opened his mouth again and said something else about the history of Canada, which is that we have no history of colonialism. This statement attenuated the meaning of the official apology in a way that I think didn't simply negate it, but actually gave it a new kind of life uh, as part of an imminent critique of Canadian history and the place of residential schools in it. So before the apology, of course, was the offense. Um, this is the history that most Canadians are now becoming familiar with. Um, and I think it's nice that we can say we assume that people know that history, because I don't think that's always been the case. Um, uh, I myself refer to uh, Canadian, the residential school policy as child internment, because uh, most of the students left with little or no education. Um, so, it's a story that we now are becoming more familiar with. Children taken, parents who re resisted uh, facing arrest, but only long enough to get their children, then they could go home. Um, we know that Duncan Campbell Scott gave us this great articulation of the goal of residential schools, was that, that they were to, our objective is to continue until there is not a single Indian in Canada that has not been absorbed into the body politic. The fact that he was saying this at a time when he knew that the death rate was as much as 50% in some school, uh, in some schools, I think we can see that absorbed being both in a kind of softer assimilation sense, but also, you know, when rubber hits the road, um, a lot of children died, uh, also in the process. So residential schools were gradually secularized in the 1970s, and the last was closed in 1996. But even before this, the stories of uh, abuse and pain started to emerge. Anishinaabe chief Bill Fontaine really led the way in 1990, um, speaking about his experiences. And in the next 10 years, there were over 15,000 individual and 21 class action lawsuits brought against churches, clergy members, and the government. So the focus that began on abuses that occurred while at schools soon began to include the crime of Indian residential school policy itself. In 2001, the federally operated Office of Indian Residential Schools Resolution Canada was created. And I think there's a reason here I want to get a bit in the weeds, because the causality is important for, the, for understanding the TRC overall, and particularly when we talk about um, taking historical, taking credit for particular events. So I think it's important for us to remember that the, in 2001, the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement was what created the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It was uh, the largest class action lawsuit in Canadian history. Um, it, of the 150,000 children that had been in schools since they had opened, over half were still alive when this agreement was made. So where the official apology appears in this is uh, important. In 2007, before the agreement had been made, the Deputy Prime Minister described in a letter, a cover letter to uh, the agreement, that there was a need for an apology that would provide broader recognition of Indian residential school legacy and its effect upon First Nations community. C 
communities. This is the only place actually where apologies appear in the entire agreement. Um, in 2007, when the agreement was ratified, there were five uh, parts to it. These included the uh, comment experience payment, the independent assessment process, so a process to get particular compensation for particular abuses, the creation of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, a commemoration fund for historical um, processes, and the establishment of a limited-term Aboriginal Healing Foundation. So we know that the Truth Commission was a sticking point for the in the negotiation of the settlement, and in the end, the $60 million budget was taken out of the settlement overall. The commissioners, in the course of their work, would point to this a lot, and to point out that it was the survivors themselves who had paid for the commission, that it had come out of their payments. This uh, was a very important thing for all of the commissioners to uh, communicate to people, and I think this is partly about countering that um, that narrative of the government ownership over the process. So when the uh, Indian Residential School Agreement was announced, this was relatively big news, and the question of an apology very quickly emerged. Was this an apology? Did this amount to an apology? Was this an implicit acknowledgement of historical wrongs? What's the difference between that and an apology? It became an issue right away, and the Assembly of First Nations kind of led the way in calling for clarification and pointing to that earlier statement from the Deputy Prime Minister, uh, you know, kind of finding this little object in the uh, archives as though it were uh, proof that there had at one point been a will for an apology. Um, for his part, the Indian Affairs Minister, Jim Prentice, made it very clear that there would be no apology and he said this would require reopening the terms of the settlement, which itself had already taken over 10 years to decide. So speaking to reporters in Ottawa, he added, I've said quite clearly that the residential school chapter of our history is one that was a difficult chapter. Many things happened that we need to close the door on as part of Canadian history, but fundamentally, the underlying objective had been tr trying to provide an education to Aboriginal children. So coming just days after, after this momentous settlement, this declaration of residential schools is fundamentally well-meaning, obviously rang relatively tone-deaf, um, and it fueled calls for an official acknowledgement of what had been implicitly acknowledged in the compensation. Of course, the compensation for the students was not only for abuses that they faced, but also just simply the fact of having attended school um, included you in the compensation. Um, I think it's important to remember that the churches had provided their own apologies between 1986 and 1994, and they were left largely out of these um, discussions. That was, to some degree, considered a closed matter in some ways, though they had offered multiple apologies. But So the pressure on the federal government at this time had a very distinctly partisan tone. Uh, the liberal Gary Marasti, who was the first indigenous member of parliament for Saskatchewan, introduced a notion in the House of Commons a few months later, um, asking the conservatives, or demanding that the conservatives uh, make an official apology on behalf of the government. Describing the perils of national collective amnesia, he charged the conservatives with trying to reshape historical memory to re-suit the needs of those who are in power. Prentice replied by saying that Canada ought to follow South Africa and wait until all the facts are in, is what he said. Um, interestingly, this motion in the House of Commons passed unanimously, including with the vote of Stephen Harper. So I think it's evidence of the kind of crumbling resistance, I think, to this um, movement towards an apology. 
However, the next six months, the call, while the call for an apology was in a perennial topic, it w didn't come. Um, Mike, Michael Ignatieff, then an MP, uh, <laughs> described the, the uh, resistance as, or the conservatives as curiously resistant to making this simple remark. An editorial in the Toronto Star put it this way, Prime Minister Stephen Harper deserves universal disgust for his stubborn and inexplicable refusal to issue an official apology to the survivors on behalf of the federal government. Why is Harper being so stubborn? Only he knows because all the legal obstacles have been cleared away. Like we really see this, this folkloric idea of apologies and liability operating here. You know, what's, what does it cost is kind of the impression that or that what was being discussed at the time. Um, so by October 2007, the Governor General, Michel Jean, gave her throne speech. And in it, she said, the Prime Minister, on behalf of our government, will use this occasion to make a statement of apology to close this sad chapter in our history. Uh, in his following, his response to the throne speech, Harper did refer to Indigenous peoples, but didn't mention this apology again. It was a question of whether it was going to happen, but the following day, his office confirmed that yes, an official apology was in the pipeline. A sort of inauspicious announcement and an inauspicious uh, beginning to this apology. So on June 11th, Canadian Canadian government officially apologized on behalf of the Canadians, uh, on behalf of Canadians for the Indian residential school system. It was covered live. It was a very significant event uh, in Canadian history. I th think we can't deny that. Um, the wording of the apology was unequivocal. The government of Canada sincerely apologizes and asks forgiveness, uh, asks the forgiveness of Aboriginal peoples in this country. So I don't want to hear, and this was mentioned earlier, and I appreciate it, take away from what this meant to the survivors and to Indigenous people. I'm not an Indigenous person. I can't speak from that experience. Um, and I think it is clear that this apology itself elevated the violence that they experienced to a level of a kind of official knowledge that, especially given the emphasis on oral practices in, the, in indigenous cultures, that we can't discount that. I'm interested more in how it functioned within kind of the Canadian political context. Um, in the pages of the National Post, the next day, columnist Don Martin condemned Harper for making what he called the greatest grovel in Canadian history. Now, that was really useful when we thought, think this inexplicable, why would he resist, all of this kind of stuff. I think this word groveling really has more dimension than apologizing. It particularly has a gender dimension. Groveling is emasculating, you know. It's the terrain of kind of soft liberals who think words matter, that kind of thing. Um, and I think this, the hint, we see in this hints of the disenfranchised masculinity that we see much more prominently, I think, today. Um, and Harper, I think, may have been right in resisting entering the arena of World Historic Speech Acts um, on this particular topic, because a year later, he said this other thing that came to be read alongside his apology. We have no history of colonialism, he said, speaking to a meeting of G8 countries. So we have all of the things that many people admire about the great powers, but none of the things that threaten or bother them about the great powers. So this statement so at odds with this prime minister, prime minister asking for forgiveness, was immediately picked up by politicians and media. And the tension between the two remarks proved an easy shorthand for the poor faith and hypocrisy of indigenous federal relations over the next few years. So what does it mean to say that Canada has no history of colonialism? 
And why did these remarks ring so dissonantly in the context of the official apology? Harper had made similar remarks in the past. In 2006, he'd said, now I know it's unfashionable to refer to colonialism in anything other than negative terms, and then certain and certainly no part of the world is unscarred by the excesses of empire, but in the Canadian context, the actions of the British Empire were largely benign and occasionally brilliant. So this rehabilitation, <laughs> this rehabilitation of British imperialism in the service of Canadian nationalism, I think is increasingly common, um, but this speech that he made actually didn't uh, get much attention until after the official apology. Um, and I think particularly the, the suggestion that indigenous people ought to be grateful that British and Canadian governments did not resort to the relatively violent actions of the US government and imperial forces in Latin America has a kind of implicit threat that we can recognize. Um, so Harper's no history, of official, no history of colonialism though, as opposed to a rehabilitation of colonialism, I think is actually more productive. Um, when Harper apologized, it was for residential schools specifically, it was for that policy, but the explanation was largely cultural, explaining this as a racist policy. By this logic, the goal of residential schools was the ill-advised re-education of indigenous children, and the abuse may have been motivated by racism, but it wasn't connected to any other aspect of history. So I think when Harper denied that colonialism existed in Canada, he created a space for talking about what colonialism is and what Canada is. Without this remark, we may have never noticed that the word colonialism never appeared in the official apology. Harper often referred to indigenous people as the first settlers of Canada. Indigenous peoples are part of the fabric of the nation. They're the first Canadians. So how could Canadians colonize Canadians? In the years that followed, it's safe to say that relations between indigenous people and the federal government deteriorated. Uh, the repeal of section 67 of the Human Rights Act, First Nations Financial Transparency Act, the First Nations Elections Act, all of these were designed, I think, pretty clearly to put pressure on band councils and indigenous leadership and to intensify conflict between collective and individual rights. The 2012 Safe Streets and Communities Act was widely criticized for disproportionately affecting indigenous peoples. This is the time when National Energy Board meetings on the West Coast were being routinely shut down um, over pipeline developments. Um, and in December 2012, the protest movement known as Idle No More erupted, starting an unprecedented period of indigenous political and community mobilization. And it was within this politically charged and highly confrontational context that the TRC was quietly and uneasily, I think, situated. The relationship between the TRC and the federal government had been fraught from the start. Um, in October 2008, the chair of the commissioners resigned, citing internal conflict and concerns about political interference from Ottawa. So um, the three new commissioners were appointed, and at their request, its main office was moved from Ottawa to Winnipeg. Um, like the official apology, the settlement had been designed to limit the scope of the historical wrong, but from the start, the commission protested its lim limited jurisdiction. The com commissioners in interviews and speeches repeatedly criticized it for excluding Métis students and also indigenous students who attended day schools. And there have been legal processes that have come out of this. So between 2009 and 2014, the TRC held seven, seven large-scale national events in capital cities. Did anyone go to any of the TRC events? Yes, a few people. Really uh, remarkable events. I attended the Ottawa event and the Edmonton event. Some of my observations here are drawn from that. Um, one of the things that I noticed was the degree to which the federal government was essentially absent from these events. 
Um, and this was made more notable by the fact that the provincial and municipal politicians and governments were incredibly prominent. Um, pr provincial ministers were using the events to publicize their expanded health programs and changes to curricula. Mayors were declaring naming initiatives and training for police and all, all these kinds. There was a very much a celebration of the various jurisdictions, not the federal government in Canada. And um, while most of the news coverage at the time focused on the testimony in these speeches and the commissioner sharing panels, there were also other things happening at the events. Um, the, com the convention centers had a number of smaller panels, film screenings, education programs, and adjacent to the main hall, there was a large foyer filled with tables of craft vendors, advocacy organizations and churches, uh, selling crafts and things like this, and that's where the federal government was. It was in this vendor hall where I found federal government and the official apology alongside the rest of the tables. There was one, a large sign reading Government of Canada hanging above a table that was covered in Canadian flag pins and stickers. Uh, there were photos of the stained glass window in Parliament that was created to commemorate the residential schools. And also in a kind of big pile, there were, there was a, <laughs> I still can't really believe this. There was, passers-by were invited to take a printed copy of the Canadian apology, official apology. And it was printed out on a piece of paper with kind of faux-aged edges um, and kind of old-timey font. I don't know if they were going for a treaty, but it was rolled up like a scroll. And, and so people, that's, that was the, the inauspicious, I think, end of the official apology at the TRC. Um, a fall from grace, I think, from the, the momentous time of June 11, 2008. Um, the official apology was present in another form as part of an interactive installation called Official Denial, Trade Value and Progress, um, created by two artists, Leah Dechter and Jamie Isaac. Um, it was described as inviting Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people to consider the reconciliation, decolonization, and our colonial past and present by responding to Stephen Harper's 2009 statement, We Have No History of Colonialism. So the way that this worked is there were a whole series of um, Hudson's Bay blankets that were laid out, sewn together, and in the center, machine printed in large black letters, was We Have No History of Colonialism. And there were um, felt pens and um, needle implements for people to write on the uh, blankets themselves and respond. And the paralleling of the official denial and the official apology was not really something you had to lead people to. Many people wrote things like, um, Mr. Harper, you were charged with the duty of apologizing on behalf of all Canadians. You fell short disgraceful. So it was clear from this project, I think, that that, that relationship between these two statements had, was not lost on people. Um, so it's always difficult, oof, always difficult to disentangle political events. Uh, for some reason, this is the task I've set out for myself right now. To be honest, for me, the public memory around the official apology just annoys me. Um, it annoys me that there's this casual authority granted to the government for the TRC and for anything that comes out of it. Um, I think this diminishes the work of people who worked really hard to generate the political will against all a lot of odds. Um, I understand settler motivations to believe that we and our government simply came to our senses and decided to apologize to Indigenous peoples, rather than the reality that Indigenous peoples had to sue the government for compensation, had to pay for the commission themselves, and wrench an apology out of a prime minister who later arguably entirely disavowed it. 
So in a sense, I think that we ought to be grateful to Stephen Harper by resisting calls for an apology. He made himself an object through which Canadians could position themselves as on the right side of history. When he denied that colonialism existed in Canada, the dissonance between these statements made space for interrogating myths of Canadian nation building and the place of residential schools specifically in it, as Matt has pointed out. And I think it was in this space that the TRC really made its home. Um, the temporal bracketing of the apology is blown wide open by the TRC report itself, which uh, says that the goals of the uh, residential school policies were the elimination of Aboriginal governments, to ignore Aboriginal rights, terminate treaties, and cause Aboriginal peoples to cease to exist as distinct legal, social, and cultural, religious, and racial identities. So tasked with investigating residential schools, the TRC found it to be just one part of a coherent and systemic campaign to assert control over indigenous land and bodies uh, to build Canada, we could say. Child internment was a means to an end, not an end in itself. The goal wasn't reformation or education, of course. It was clearing the way for the settlement of Canada. So residential schools may no longer exist, but reserves, treaties, and aboriginal rights sure do. I think getting the relationship between Harper's official apology and the TRC right is important precisely because of the position of the TRC and how its report has been taken up in the Canadian political landscape. The release of the report, we all know, sparked a rather significant eruption of media coverage, academic conferences, um, community events, and so on across the country. I think it's uh, e I think it's reasonable to say that it has shift, shifted political discourse in Canada. It's brought words like settlers and indigenous out of activist uh, spheres. And today, politicians and citizens alike refer to the TRC as though it were some sort of official institution endowed with a kind of moral authority we might associate with the Supreme Court, rather than the result of a class action lawsuit. So I think the official apology may have played a role in that, but primarily as an articulation of how far Canada has to go to understand its own history. Thank you.